Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, Ed Roberson reads and discusses his own work. Ed Roberson has taught poetry at Columbia College in Chicago and at Northwestern University and has received many awards and prizes for his work. His seven books of poetry, however, reveal a life far outside the literary establishment. He draws from his experiences in scientific expeditions to Alaska, exploring the Amazon, and working in a steel mill in his native Pittsburgh. Poet and critic Michael Palmer has called Roberson one of the most deeply innovative and critically acute voices of our time. In this lecture, Ed Roberson reads selections from his book City Eclogue, pausing frequently to explain the source of an image to give listeners an inside look at the poet's creative process. Here's Ed Roberson speaking at Northwestern University on November 14, 2007. Usually when people give a reading, for some of the poems I have to stop and tell a story or give some background, sort of uh, map an area or a way to get into the poem. Um, some, sometimes I think of my poems as sort of weird with a pretty long way to um, try to get into them. So what I want to do uh, this evening is to uh, take a couple of poems and map out not only the personal experiences, but try to map out the thinking that went into taking the experience and putting it into words and getting it into, into a poem. So uh, when I'll be talking about ecology, but I'll really be talking about how I learned to write nature poems. <laughs> That's kind of key because uh, in the 60s, we, we mentioned in our class, there were folks who were saying that um, uh, black folks didn't need to be dealing with na uh, nature poems. They, they needed to be talking about what was going on in the community. Well, um, I was in the community, except I was in Alaska. I had a job. And uh, uh, I, I really um, not took offense, but I sort of thought that you guys are missing something uh, if you don't sort of pay attention to how folks from the cities deal with uh, nature once they find themselves out in the middle of it, uh, stuck in the middle of the ocean or you know, up at 16,000 foot. Um, so what I want to do is kind of talk about how I took those experiences and, and turned them into particular poems and particular images that I repeat uh, throughout my work. So um, I'll just start. I finished writing the concluding poem in the new book, City Eclogue, nearly three weeks after the book had been published. Like most writers, I often have that moment of, and furthermore, even after the poem is finished. Uh, that moment usually is the basis of another poem that will most likely show up later in the serial sequence. This time, though, I was sort of like that British painter Turner, who's rumored to have stood in a gallery at an opening night, retouching a work that had been accepted and already hung on the wall. My, my lines, however, came to me in a hotel room as I was practicing for the first public reading from the completed book. I'd read that particular poem before, but this time I was reading it in its context, right, in the book, in the sequence, uh, from the page proofs. The lines are added a few stanzas before the end of the poem, eclogue, and actually complete and extend the thought in the existing lines in the poem uh, about Aristophanes, uh, uh, who calculated the circumference of the earth by geometry applied to the measurement of shadows. 
Well, these lines are, the world's circumference is just a line. But once we know our lives are on that line, we have nowhere to go but round each other. These added lines distort the stanza out of proportion to the going 10-line stanza pattern. Um, but I'd never had so strong a feeling of, there, I finally said it, as at that moment. The stanza pattern goes out the window because I'm keeping these words, even if I don't always read them uh, publicly. Every time I read the poem, I'm keeping those words. Because I think these words actually, uh, these added lines actually say it, not only for that line of thought in the preceding sentence, uh, but they also complete a statement of what the poem is about, what the book is about, and the most surprisingly to me, now that it's done, they say a lot about what I've been about in doing my own poetry. Um, writing poetry for me began with the, with the nature poem. Most beginning writers record outpourings of their most personal uh, emotions or of adolescent conflict, usually love. I did that too but not so much as pouring out my feelings about what I was doing at the time, which was traveling around Alaska, Canada, the US, and Bermuda, doing nature. I was an undergraduate research assistant in limnology, which is freshwater chemistry. I was collecting samples, so I was always in the field. Um, I was recording and analyzing data, which means I had to always have, have a, a pack full of equipment. But it was on a very simple level. We had a huge team of, of researchers. Uh, but my first national published poem was grand prize winner of the Atlantic Monthly uh, Contest. It sounds like the undergraduate lab assistant to the god of nature. <laughs> the poem goes something like this. I must be careful about such things as these, the thin-grained oak, the quiet grizzly scared into the hills by the constant tracks squeezing in behind them closer in the snow. The snared rigidity of the winter lake Deer after deer crossing on the spines of fish who look up and stare with their eyes pressed to the ice in a sleep, hearing the thin taps leading away to collapse like the bear in a high quiet. I must be careful not to shake anything into wild inhalation, not to jar the fragile mountains against the paper farness, nor avalanche the fog or the eagle from the air of the gentle wilderness. I must set the precarious words like rocks without one snow-capped mistake. Uh, that's my first large-scale pub, uh, published poem, um, about 18. By the end of this early poem, nature turns into words, turns into stacking words, being careful about words. The poem is as much about the experience of writing as it is about the experience and observation of nature. I think this is also my early understanding of words as appropriation not just a simple record of the unfamiliar, but taking the unknown and putting it under the control or in the realm of the known word. In the takeover, the taken is changed to conform to the taker. In other words, those are my carefully chosen deer, my grizzlies. However, they're not nature's. And with this understanding comes a suspicion that this poem also is not nature as if I'd stuffed and mounted them on the wall, I appropriated the grizzlies without the active appetites or their teeth, and I appropriated for a quiet, non-lethal poem. The teeth stay behind in a missing nature. The missing appetite and teeth came to reinforce my sense 
of how the human experience of nature differs from the larger nature. But there's always an unknowable hidden aspect of this larger nature. This mystery beyond words is a root, if not itself, our mythology, our religion, my poetry. And we exist in the midst of living in another living beyond our human life. We have words to understand the experience, uh, understand and, and, and experience our existence, but we come to the limit of, uh, of those words and the limit of the experience of life at that border of silence we reach when we face non-communicative nature, an animal who doesn't speak our language. This nature, however, has no limit. We have limits. There's no outside of nature. There's an outside of us. There's no outside of nature to even experience. To the current theories of echo-poetics, man, man can't reside outside of nature. He can't be outside of nature. And our life exists inside and as an act of nature. Even our experience as a of the supernatural arises out of the likeness in the world, out of our limited being, the end of our being. Beyond that, we can invent a supernatural. Echopoetic theory sees the world of human experience existing in, on, or rising and precipitating out of the earth. The world is not the same as the earth. The world is our experience and the structure of that knowledge in which we live, that earth you see from the satellites. The nature poem occurs when a sense of the earth enters into the world of human knowledge. The main understanding that results from this encounter is that the world's desires do not drive the earth, but the earth does run the world. The earth, nature, is very generous with this little idea. The lines, I must be careful, came out of that job located in, in, in Alaska, but where the unknown, uncontrollable aspects of bears stepped around Alaska to lo locate me in the earth. The distinction between world and earth was made very clear a few months ago when the New York Times ran an article about the rapid melting of Alaska's Portage Glacier. I used to pass this glacier regularly, going back and forth up and down the Kenai Peninsula, returning, to, returning and leaving Anchorage. I could see it from the road. I could see it from the car. Now the Times says you have to drive back up into the valley in order to see it, and you'd better get there quick because it's, it's leaving. That news item prompted the understanding that the end of the world and the end of the earth are two separate events. And it brought up the following poem. To see the earth before the end of the world. People are grabbing at the chance to see the earth before the end of the world. The world's death piece by piece, each longer than we. Some endings of the world overlap our lived time, skidding for generations to the crash scene of species extinction. The five minutes it takes for the plane to fall. The mile ago it takes to stop the train. The small bay to coast the liner into the ground. The tidal line of nations till the land dies, the continent uninhabitable. That very subtlety of time between large and small. A media note, people chasing glaciers in retreat up their valleys, and the speed, watched ice was speed made invisible. Now, days and a few feet away, further away, a subtle collapse of time between large and our small human extinction. 
its ice bare disappears into this white and melts, and the ground beneath him into vapor, into air, all that once chased us, and we chased to a balance, chasing back, tooth for spear, knife for claw, locks us in this grip. We just now see our own lives taken by, taking them out. Hunting the bear, we hunt the glacier, with the changes come of that choice. The bears. Uh, I worked on the island off of um, Kodiak, a Fognac Island. A Fognac Island is uninhabited except for the research station. Uh, there were 12 of us there. Um, and uh, you had to go in by those old uh, amphibians, a Navy, a Navy goose. Uh, and the bears, the only path for getting around the, the island to do our research was the bears' trails. So we actually had to walk with the idea that we might meet a bear going shopping the other direction. The, ba the bears ate these uh, salmon, they call them salmon bears, Russian berries, beautiful little raspberries, real plump little pink raspberries. Uh, they'd eat them and get drunk, and we'd eat them all, uh, also as we were walking along. Uh, once when we were coming ashore um, with our boat to, to do some work, we saw the bears fishing uh, in one of the streams that was leading in, into the lake. And so we sort of went further up, up the uh, lake to uh, up the, the beach to be away from them. And we started walking in. Um, and the idea was that we were all told to make lots of noise so we'd scare the bears away. But we still had to walk on the bears' path. So um, we headed across to this meadow we were aiming for and, uh, you know, banging things, yelling, and just making fools of ourselves because it was fun. And um, we got to a point where we turned around and looked back, and the bear was sitting right in the middle of the path, staring at us. And uh, there was a woman who, her and her husband tagged the bears. She busted out laughing and sort of explained to us that the bears are really smart. When we make all that noise, they'll just sit there and let us go right past. They're not interested in us. So apparently what the bear had done, just sort of sat right there in the bushes while we walked past. And then when the parade got far enough away, he looked at us <laughs> watched us go. Uh, that's the experience underneath that. Um, so I've been doing nature in the sense of seeing nature as all there is to do ever since my lab assistant days, taking down the data, not only of the uh, present natural world, but the data on myself in that world as just another one of its innumerable co uh, components. The self-conscious attention to being in balance, careful to being a part of nature, not separate as its master or its crown, was to become one of the basic positions of my ecopoetics. I didn't call it that at the time. My orderly handling of the nature poem came from my feel for basic, uh, my feel for basic scientific observation and technique. But the order of a metaphysical imperative is something else, um, not even a green piece. As for the models of poetic technique, the movement from poetry as outpouring to discovery of poetry as crafted, as made, living art had already come with the class on the British metaphysical poets, especially John Donne, his neatly balanced data sheet of metaphysical conceit, so to speak. But I've been at the mercy of nature's, uh, nature's uh, fragrant innocence, as he calls it, in the upper Amazon jungle and climbing in the Andes mountains. And the green thought in a green shade had been an actual jaguar, probably seeing me 
with the thought of dinner off the page. Marvell's garden feeds both ways. My place in nature could be to feed as well as to be fed the nectarine and peach in Marvell's poem. That leveling fear exposed another difference between my experience and the British nature poem. Against the eternal idol, idol of a romantic nature, I had to place the idea of the limit of mortality. Um, we were we stopped on the way to um, Mount Sangai in, in Ecuador in the jungle, and we made a lean-to, the Indians made a lean-to, and we sort of sat there and enjoyed the evening and rolled over and went to sleep. In the morning when we woke up, um, we were surrounded by jaguar tracks. Uh, the Indians went crazy. I didn't know what, you know, I didn't know what was going on. And finally we were able to make the translation, and what, what, what had happened was the thing was just, wasn't, wasn't hungry, it was just thirsty. The stream was over there, and it sort of walked by us on the way to the stream. We didn't know. We didn't know we had sort of sat down in the middle of its path to the stream. Um, and it just came by us, looked at us, fools sort of laughed at us, and went and got something to drink and went home. Um, that kind of thing, sort of um, stopping to look at nature, at how a fish might look up and see the stilt stalker heron in the West Indian Day parade crowd. I turn at the stilt walker's loud grand baton foot, clearing a silence swept smooth of scared people back before the bow wave its step in their noise wakes. And I am the one caught. This is what folks talk about the gods walking, sitting on your shoulders, in your shoes, having consumed you in that beauty. Fixed by the crack of the gavel, your decision made to face and see. I was always the one that they had to snatch when something was, uh, something was um, in the way. I, 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 always, I always would stop and look, and not always at the most op, you know, opportune times. So this business about making the decision in, while people are running, while we're actually running, making the decision to stop and, and look. I, I sort of had to face that. That's, that. that's really what I do. I even did that in a steel mill. I worked in a, in a mill, where a rolling mill. There were five stand um, uh, rollers. And the um, slab, would, the slab would be about the size of this table, but it'd be about this thick. And it started in the first mill. But by the time it came out of the, it started in very slowly, but by the time it came out of the last mill, it was about this thin, and it was moving like a freight train. It was also red hot. Uh, I was sent to get coffee for the for the crew once, and um, when it comes out of the out of the mill, it goes along a conveyor belt and it's moving like I say, like a freight train. And one day, what happened is it just just sort of nicked in one of those things in the conveyor belt, and the uh, this red hot ribbon sort of shot up in the sky. Uh, dummy here <laughs> stopped and went to see it. Uh, whistles, everything went off, and people were diving underneath. There's a place where you can dive uh, right alongside. There's a place where you can dive in. I didn't dive. I sort of stood there and wanted to see this uh, hot iron standing up uh, until one of the guys grabbed me. But the next morning when I came to work, the whole crew met me at the door. <laughs> I wonder what they were all doing. And, they all started laughing at me, you know, ah, da, da, you know. <laughs> but, 
that's 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 sort of me, and I, and that's that's what shows up in the, that's what shows up in the poem. A traditional gombi or stilt walker prays or chants himself out of his body into spirit, a state of possession. To see gombi dancers, they appear to be flying bodiless above the crowd, the legs stretched by the liftoff, barely still touching the ground. They move so lightly. In the transformation of this poem, the gombi has the spirit of a heron, and I am the fish he is hunting. I am one of the prey of the earth, not eaten, not to be eaten, not eaten as yet, but rather made to see my human world through the eyes located elsewhere in the earth nature complex. I am not made to see death, but rather to see what it is to almost instinctively turn and face a knowledge beyond my current grasp to be possessed by the earth. That poem is sort of about sort of being possessed by the earth, stopping, stopping to look. Um, Gombi, da uh, Gombi dancers are also accompanied by um, its uh, Gwede. And if you go to the Brooklyn Parade, you'll, you'll see a version of Gwede. Gwede is a, uh, uh, a man with one eye that sees into this world, one eye that sees into the world of the dead. He also uh, is very sexual. He wears a, uh, an evening coat with tails, but that's all. No shirt, no underwear, no. And if you go to the parade in, uh, in, 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 um, in, in Brooklyn, as I did one, after, one, one afternoon, I saw a man who was dressed as Guede with his suit on. Uh, and he had on high heels, uh, pantyhose, and one of the legs of the pantyhose was stuffed with something. And he was running around, and the, the, the penis was covered with um, motor oil. And one of the things Guede does is give you a hug. But he gives you a hug, and he smears you full of oil. He smears you with, smears you with his own dirt. He smears you with, uh, he can handle dirt. He can handle the unpleasant. Humans can't. He can deal with that. We can't. So what Guede does, what Guede was doing uh, on, up, up in Brooklyn, was sort of grabbing people covered with motor oil, grabbing people and just smearing them with dummy. I stopped and looked again. <laughs> I wanted to see that. Jonathan Bates says, it is the capacity of the writer to restore us to the earth, which is our home. Technology is more likely to conserve, regenerate, and nourish the resource base of capitalism. Nature as a tool and storehouse has a development parallel to our own. The initial relationship between humanity and environment is in relationships of utility and potential resource. The need to be restored to the earth is to offset the developed alienation that comes from actually these kinds of relationships. On some of my travels, I felt that arrogance and living as though all this nature were another one of the Europeans' great peeling slaves. The parallels in policies of colonialism and the one-sided exploitation of nature, nature, natural ecologies began to open a new aspect of contemporary nature or poetry that needs to be written, and I tried to write it. I think this is where the book uh, City Eclogue began, in the attempt to show not only the nature of humans in the larger earth, but to show our policies, governments, cultures, also as nature in that larger earth. For instance, we like to think 
that our moral behavior is applied or is constant in any situation. Researchers have found out that how we act altruistically, in fact, depends on the mood we're in. It depends on our psychic or emotional weather. And this is just as hard to predict. It can be t de depend on whether we have whatever we have for breakfast, a happy dose of chocolate, or a stiff neck. Here's a poem that comes from that. Monk's Bird Book. Morning doves are not owls after a while away from the city. Not because the country appears of a softer feather, less predatory. You're thinking about a sound more naturally friendly, less edgy and dangerous than the subway. But because the city, city to city, within itself so sharply details for you, actually walks you through a training in the amplitudes of form. After a while, that sharpness wipes the smile, the natural head you putting on everything. Really, owls are so soft, their deadly accuracy of flight depending on it, they're all but silent, a recognizable law. Nobody says shit, you learn. The city has taught you to pick up on which wings bring the disc of their sun for around your neck each day, and which take you out, and that your green act of good is natural, in that it too depends on the weather. by the rivers of. The rivers of are the Allegheny, the Monongahela, which meet uh, at the tip of Pittsburgh and turn into the Ohio River by the rivers of. That's where, where I live, where I was born. The boys came in the house home from day camp that summer. They were stopped so many feet into their running through the door, made to meet the guests required of to sing what they had done today. They sang of being taught, though they thought they knew already how to swim. Asked if they liked it, the youngest explained that what he liked the best was to come in through the top door of the water into the city beneath the pool. He said he saw long lights he liked. People made funny faces and were flying. At the time, uh, I'm going to stop in the middle of these poems. At the time, I was working at the, at the Pittsburgh Public Aquarium. And I saw that, but I, 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 had, I didn't have those words. The, the kid could see it better than I could see it. Uh, and out of that, seeing people in the water, I began to think of and make the association, the middle passage of, of dissolved bodies in the water uh, that shows up in so much poem, so, so many poems, Robert Hayden folks. I am the guest. I come in through the top door of the water four to 12 for the public aquarium. I'm a diver, tank man to porpoises, moray eels, the lightning cloud of neon tetras at my hand. I midwife the anaconda, all 60 plastic wrap egg babies, making a living, living in a vision city of living cubes of water door to door. The anaconda was 20 foot long, and at that time I was a skinny kid. Um, I, I was 150 pounds, the anaconda was, 100, was, was 200 pounds, and the anaconda was actually bigger around the waist than I was. And uh, we had to feed it, we had to force feed it. And the way you force feed it is you tempt it up, tempt it up, you would come up to the door, get hold of the head, and start yanking it out of the tank. And everybody, it took five of us, everybody would 
dump the thing, pour the thing into a large um, garbage pail, put it in a garbage pail, get it in there and slap the top on. Uh, the top would be on and he'd open it just a little bit so there's light and he'd be tempted toward the light. He'd stick his head up again, he'd tilt the, the, uh, the garbage can and a snake comes out and everybody grabs a hunk. You start at the tail and you stretch him out. And I'm the lightest one and I'm in the middle and I'm up in the air and my feet aren't touching the ground. And uh, what uh, the curator has to do is you un unhinge the jaws and you take a rat and you shove it down the thing's throat. Uh, there was this business of having to feed the anacondas. And anacondas um, actually give birth to the, the babies live. They're not in eggs. They're in live. They're in a membrane. They're in, they're in a, a clear or sort of cloudy membrane. It's like plastic wrap. And I was there one night, and uh, I liked the 4 to 12 because I had the whole aquarium to myself, and I didn't have to bother with anybody. It's just me and the animals. We could have fun. So one, one day I came in about 4 o'clock. I noticed these little lumps in the anaconda uh, cage. And uh, I just thought that you know, one of the visitors had, had uh, tossed something into the cage. And I'd intended to clean it out a little bit later. Uh, so everybody went home. And locked, I locked everything up. Uh, but later as I was making my rounds, I noticed that there were all these little snakes all over the place. And it dawned on me you know, that I'd better call the curator and let him know that the, that the anaconda was giving birth. But in the meantime, uh, while he was coming, one of the things I did was it, on the top of the uh, tank, there's this wire, wire cage. I sat on the top of the tank and took a coat hanger and put it down between my legs, down, hook up one of these little snakes, bring it up through the wire, and, and dump it into an aquarium with, uh, with sand in it so that it could sort of rub the, uh, the, the, any, any leftovers from the membrane off. So that idea of all 60 plastic wrap egg babies, that's true. That, that in fact, is, is life. Uh, but the idea that they were delivered in these little plastic bags was, was so fascinating to me. And there were 60 of them. There were 60 of these things. Um, and I, here I was making a living, living in a vision city of living cubes of water going door to door. And this door-to-door -door became important to me, the, the thought that I was taking care of these things, going door-to-door -to, -door to take care of these, 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 these fish. Some of the tanks were, uh, I had South American, some of the tanks were sharks. You're going to hear the shark, about the shark in here. Uh, Arapaima, which is sort of like a, a six-foot-long um, uh, mackerel. It looks like a, a mackerel. Uh, but I was going door to door taking care of these things. And the idea of going to door to door, uh, I had some sort of Christian sense of uh, angels, sort of like the angels would appear um, in your form, um, like the angel appears to Abraham or the angels come to Lot's family. Uh, and what Abraham or Lot does is give them food, treat them well, welcome them in, and then they get a gift. And here I am every day, you know, sort of lifting the top off the tank, putting my feet in and sliding in. Um, sometimes I get bit, but, you know, that kind of coming to visit and providing help is what appears in these next sequence of images. Door to door, tank displays on my shift don't get visited by out-of-tank appearances in their own likeness, hiding gifts of transcendence and wisdom. Rather than glory, tubes, 
and cylinders trailing old air, poor disguised slippers for wings, and gifts no more than a Karen feeding. So I, I felt like that angel. Though I'm trained to their pHs and oxygen levels, this is a lay practice of my own. Uh, now, this whole sequence here is the exchange between uh, uh, nature, one kind of nature, and another kind of nature. Uh, this is a lay practice of my own care and feeding. They live in a timeless solution of their histories, the living broth of their other lives, their dead, their brothers. I find something familial, familiar in these small squares, these boxes buried in the public air of the aquarium, the slave Atlantic's water. And we were, we're an inland aquarium, and one of the things that we had to do periodically is go to New York and get seawater. We would get um, a, a tank, milk, milk tanks. So we'd go from the farms, uh, Pennsylvania farms, out to the East Coast, and they would return with seawater uh, for uh, these tank trucks, milk trucks would return with seawater that we would put into tanks we had underneath the building. So this, this, this idea of getting water from the Atlantic and having to live in that water, the way the, the animals, the way the, 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 the fish had to live in the water, sometimes they would die in there. So you'd pull them out, just crank up the, uh, the, the filter to clear out the dead, and they, they'd live in there. The idea that, that um, we have to live in U.S. history that I have to live in U.S. history, and the history contains my dead, contain, contains the folks lost in, in the Middle Passage. We all know that, but you sort of walk around in that. The idea of going swimming, and uh, uh, you know, up at Ohio Pal or some little place, going swimming, and all of a sudden seeing an ancestor over here. And that, that image appears, Walcott has that image. Uh, you have that image appear in, in a lot of our writers. I don't think it's an image that's, that's, that's carried just because it's a pretty image. I think that thing is deeply felt, because I, I know I felt that, uh, that, that's, that something is in the water. Something is in the water. Um, I find something familial, familiar in these small squares, these boxes buried in the public air of the aquarium, the slave Atlantic's water, blocked each into a plot. Water is one with its everywhere. But how many loss of all of us brought here in my wandering, going in door to door, into the gathered ecologies, keeping a watch out for the shark? In what I bring, in this extra grace said, from some black thing to this fair, they get their care and feeding. So the idea appeared to, uh, sort of came to me that, that uh, I, I was feeding these things. I was getting them, sometimes they'd bite me, you know, sort of nibble on you. Uh, so I was feeding them, and they were sort of maybe feeding on me, uh, but they were living, we were living off each other, is, is the sense that I wanted to get across in this poem, is the sense that I felt. As if some hour in all employment living to give it goes to their loss, where without this sorry New York minutes pause at ourselves in this country, we lose our colors, the gray side of money, that pail of ghosts flying folds on our chest. You know, we, we, one of the things we'd have to look at, look for constantly, is, is a fish that would go belly up. And the sharks were, were in my wing of the building. Uh, I was in charge of the sharks. And we had one stupid shark who just, they have to move all the time. So we had one shark who just, 
every now and then, he just for the fun of it sort of turned belly up on us. What you'd have to do is you'd drop the tank like crazy. Everybody runs and drops the tank. You get the tank down uh, low enough so that you can actually stand in the tank. And then you take the dumb shark by its top fin, by its dorsal, and you walk it through the water, let, letting the water go through its gills until its tail begins to move. Once the tail begins to move, it begins to get active, and you get the hell out of the tank and, <laughs> and fill it up again. But this is, that image there is, is true. The, uh, they do depend on, on, on us. So that belly up business, uh, uh, the gray side of money, the pale side of money, the ghost side of money is a, is a real and in fact image. And we can like that float up fattened by work that is emptied of the gain back of our lives. There's a pause here in the poem because there's, a, there's an invocation. This is an invocation that comes from voodoo. They come from in between things through as though between things shines a door. We sing of the Orisha. I hear a singing on the other side of a door, singing going on behind the tanks heard on the public floor, people invisibly at work on public display on their aquarium, parading the core we've decorated as gods of these thousands of years unseen. You couldn't see the work, you couldn't see us when we were behind the tanks, but you could hear us. Uh, but we could, see all, we could also see through the water, see people standing out there. And we would just make funny noises sometimes just to sort of see the reaction on people's faces. So, so, so uh, that idea that there's someone working to keep things alive. We call them gods, we call them angels, guardian angels and stuff. Uh, and, and I find that I'm getting paid for that. I'm getting paid for that kind of thing. The next break there in voice is uh, uh, that morning we woke when we had lost the attempt, all our supplies, everything but our lives washed down the river. Uh, this is into the body of the poem, the, the, the real meat of the poem now. In, in South America, uh, we were going up the, uh, we were going up the, uh, the, the river towards the volcano. We got into a canyon uh, where the um, river narrowed down. And uh, we began to notice that, that the water was moving up the side of the canyon, very slowly moving up the side of the canyon. And the idea was, you know, that it was raining up on the mountain. There was some, uh, uh, something going on up there. So we started to run downstream. We uh, ran downstream until uh, it, got, it got dark on us really quick. And we were running in the dark uh, in, in the riverbed. We got to a point where um, we were in a high spot but we were surrounded by water. And um, um, what we did, we didn't have anything else to do but go to sleep. What we did was uh, uh, sort of divide up the sleeping bags between myself and Bud and the three Indians who had, who had stayed with us, divide up the sleeping bags, and we just crawled into the sleeping bag. We were so worn out, we just went to sleep. The idea was if you wake up, good. If you don't, it's not a problem. So uh, we, we did wake up, and, and, but we had lost a lot of equipment. And um, we had no food when we, when we woke up, and we knew we had to get out. We couldn't climb. We couldn't go any further in the climb. We actually had to get out of, of the jungle. And the question was, what are we going to eat? Well, the Indians uh, took us walking down the, um, down, down the riverbed, and in those pools left by the flood, uh, there were fish. And they picked out a fish that was, uh, it was like a turtle. It looked like a turtle to me. 
What it was, it was a placostomus. You've seen them. You go to the little pet stores. You see the little gray things that look like tanks, you know, sort of munchy, 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 up and down. You've seen those little things. And they have this hard shell. That's a placostomus. We ate this thing. We ate it raw. We, 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 we had to eat that for a couple of days. We ate, we ate that thing. Um, and then one night, I was walking through the aquarium. I'd cleaned up everything. Um, and I was just sort of taking my joy rounds of the, uh, the aquarium. Sometimes when I'm finished early, I'll just go swim with the porpoises. But one night, I noticed that that's the damn thing that I ate that kept me alive. And I'd been there uh, a couple of years and had not noticed. Um, these little proclostomists, the things that you see in the, in, in, the, in the pet store, actually grow to be about this big. And that's about the size of the thing. We sort of ripped the belly off, and we all, all five of us ate, out of, ate that meat. And one night, like I say, I recognized it. That morning we woke when we had lost the attempt, all our supplies, everything but our lives washed down the river. Left in a puddle of fish, we only had to dish up out of its own carapace, the shelled catfish, Placostomus. And here it was. I see now, recognize one of my samples I care for in this exhibit as all that kept me alive till we reached the village. And the poem goes on from there uh, with, the, with the acceptance of when I go home, I'd better be a little bit more respectful about dogs and cats and squirrels and things. Um, but there's one little sequence in that. Come back in from, from my own expeditions out. I know the diving aboard landing of the plane made into the glittering night waters that are the city home. Searching the long, waving light refraction for its drawing of that African's face. And that three-line segment there is um, from the Philip, uh, my godson, coming in at the very beginning of the poem saying that he saw faces uh, in the water, uh, searching the long, waving light refraction for its drawing of that African's face. Now, what's interesting, what, what, what's interesting closing out the poem, I don't make a big deal out of it, closing out the poem, but Philip and Juta's father is Zulu. Um, he's Zulu, educated in England, and he married a Quaker. Their mother is a white Philadelphia Quaker. Uh, so here, um, these kids sort of telling me that they see these faces in the water, and here are these kids of my friends. I'm over there for dinner, and um, he has one history of Middle Passage. I have another history of Middle Passage. He came over on a plane. I don't know how the hell I got here, but he came over on a plane, an educated man working at the university, and all of us sort of able to sit down that evening at the table. But the boys, they'll grow up in what only is a difference in this country, as if starting the exhibit at a different door changed the subject. Their mother, white like many's, somewhere in our people here. They're African, black, like a many's in our American people's father came over long after the Middle Passage on a plane to school. A whole new subject here. But we sit down to Miles, to Louis Armstrong over dinner, and later a little Lou Donaldson 
gets us dancing our stuff. <laughs> Thank you. That was Ed Roberson speaking at Northwestern University on November 14, 2007. Roberson's book, City Eclogue, was published in 2006. At poetryfoundation.org, you'll find articles about poetry, an online archive of more than 8,000 poems, and other audio programs to download. This has been Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.